3: Hello, I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature careers podcast. In this seven part series, Science Diversified, we're exploring how the scientific enterprise truly benefits when you have a team of researchers from a broad range of backgrounds, disciplines, and skill sets. Each episode ends with a 10 minute sponsored slot from the International Science Council about its work on diversity. In this fifth episode, we focus on the value of non-traditional routes to science. We meet two people who turn their lives around to discover careers in research and hear how their previous life experience has become an asset.
1: I had a very normal high school uh, career, I was very much so into sports. I was a, I was a wrestler, uh, and, and it really didn't include much drug or alcohol use uh, at all uh, when I was in high school. My senior party is where it really kind of all began. I uh, went to a, a party and really, for the first time, I think, drank to really feel the effects, and that really kind of set a tone for the way that I drank and used drugs uh, over the next, you know, 10, 20 years of, of my life. I'm Dr. Noel Vest, a postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford University School of Medicine in California, USA right around 21, 22 years old, two things happened. Uh, I started to make a little bit more money uh, than I probably should have at that that time of my life. And I went through a breakup uh, with my high school sweetheart. We had had a daughter and then had a breakup. And um, really, that was kind of the catalyst for, the, for that downward spiral of addiction that you hear so often uh, from, from people that experience substance use disorder. Uh, and that's what it was for me. I, I really spent the next four, five years in and out of jail, um, you know, given chances, shamed. And, you know, in that time, I was never really offered treatment. And so, you know, that, that in and out, out of jail, you know, ended up in kind of this this seedy drug subculture that that's very common to, to methamphetamine addiction, which was what I ended up being uh, addicted to. I was sentenced as a habitual offender in the Nevada Department of Corrections in, in 2002. And that was the beginning of a, a seven-year prison sentence.
4: My name is Julie Dunn. I'm a biomolecular archaeologist and I work at the University of Bristol. So I worked as an accountant in the construction industry for over 25 years um, and it was in my mid-40s that I decided I wanted to do something completely different. And um, whilst I love my job, it was very interesting. I always knew that I wanted to be one of those people who uh, who loved what they did, who got up in the morning like a David Attenborough, full of enthusiasm for their you know, work day. So I decided that um, to the, my way into this was I had to uh, go and do a degree in anthropology and archaeology worked best because that covers not just primate studies, but human origins and so on. So I came along to Bristol and I fell in love with the archaeology and I realised that might be more the route to go down and I actually transferred on to a, an archaeological sciences degree because that, that really suited better. I've, I wanted to marry the, the archaeology and the science to answer questions about our human past. So then after a, a four-year degree which you know I loved every minute was great fun I then went on to do a PhD in organic geochemistry. So that's using chemical techniques to um, answer questions about the human past.
1: You know, prison was very tough, but the, the great thing about it is they had AA meetings and they had um, community college that, that came in and taught some classes. Uh, those were a catalyst for really just uh, self, self-improvement, self self-reflection, um, and really, you know, Thank mm-hmm getting a, a great start at, uh, w- when I got out. And so those college classes were really just instrumental uh, because they allowed me to lay a foundation of study habits, uh, that, that I still use today. Um, and so, yeah, I got out, went, went to community college the very first day I had my dr- dad drop me off. Uh, I had a couple of instructors along the way that really just changed my life, uh, and, and really turned into lifelong mentors along the way. And, I uh, went to University at Washington State University after I finished the community college uh, at at 40 years old uh, and introduced to research and science and it really just changed my life forever um, and so then went to PhD school. It started expanding my skills, learning some advanced statistical training, and I found something that fit my my learning style completely, and I, I never really looked back.
4: So um, I work on various different projects now. I still do some work in Africa. Currently I'm working in West Africa. But I've I've, I've recently worked on a project where I investigated the earliest prehistoric baby bottles. So these are the most astonishing little vessels. Um, They're very small. um, They just would fit in the palm of your hand. Um, They're literally the size of a baby bottle. And they very often take these zoomorphic shapes Um, So they take the form of little animals, although they're imaginary little animals, so they sometimes have little head and little feet. Um, So you can imagine prehistoric parents making these little bottles, not just to feed their babies, but also just to make them laugh. You can see the little prehistoric babies holding these and laughing at the funny little animal figures. So um, I kind of hooked up with a colleague um, on Facebook, actually. She was studying motherhood in prehistory. And um, she put a picture up of one of these and said, we would really love to know what's in these little bottles. And so I sort of said, well, actually, I think I might be able to help you there because that is what I do. Um, so we got together and um, I went over to Vienna and sampled uh, several of these teeny tiny little vessels, which was pretty nerve wracking because they're very precious. Um They're generally found in graves, that's how we know, uh, children's graves, that's how we know they are child vessels. Um, And so it was was a real privilege to be able to sample them. So I sampled them and brought the um, uh, ceramic powder back to the lab and did our analysis and and we found that they were used to um, process uh, ruminant, so that's milk from cows, sheep or goats. So, anyway, um, we were really thrilled to find this um, evidence for milk and and to sort of learn how prehistoric mothers were, or fathers, were feeding their babies. Um, And yes, it was published in Nature.
1: (laughs) So, and really, it started very early on in my addiction. One thing that I noticed just you know, while I was in prison was that there was so much overlap between uh, people with mental health issues, uh, and substance use disorder, it was widespread in prison. And so that really just kind of stuck with me and has stuck with me this entire time. And so trying to understand that overlap or trying to understand uh, that consistent relationship was really the crux of, of where I started my, my scientific career. And so that's what I really wanted to study. It was what interested me. you know, it's always very interesting to try and understand, you know, why some people relapse and then why some people don't. So that has always kind of stuck with me uh, as well. And we tend to blame the person when they don't do well uh but uh, for me it was just so much more about contextual factors uh that that were happening and and in, in the environment uh around a person uh was so important and so that's really what i based my science on or based my my research uh program around uh the the great thing is that i, I get to use really kind of i would say fancy uh, statistical procedures to do that where we're putting people into kind of like clinically relevant subgroups or clinically relevant uh, clusters uh, and then trying to understand those 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 groups of individuals those groups of clinically relevant individuals whether that's people with high depression or whether that's people that uh, have low depression or whether it's people that relapse quite often or whether it's pe- people that make it, you know, all the way through without relapsing, trying to understand those those groups of individuals and, and what we can learn from those individuals, you know, what has uh, really, really interested me and uh, where I've, I've focused most of my attention uh, in research.
4: my previous life experience really did make me a better scientist. Um, and that's really it kind of kicked in from day one of the degree, actually. So, so you bring a variety of different things. I mean, I'd made a massive life change to do this. You know, I, I sold my home, moved, uh, to, Bristol, moved to another city, um, uh, was going to live on virtually nothing, supposed <laughs> to a reasonably decent salary, you know. So that, and that what that brings with it is is a real determination to make it work, uh, a real commitment. I knew that it was what I wanted, and and there was a real, a real work. I had a real work ethic anyway from working before, but that determination really carried me through in the times when it was tough, and there were tough times because the the downsides are that I didn't come straight from education, and some of the science I really struggled through. At the beginning, it wasn't so close to the surface of my brain, as i say um and just also the other things like being really organized and and planning the way I went to work previously, I brought all those skill sets to my work as a scientist and and you do have to be organized and and plan things and so on as a scientist so
1: I do think uh just just as we use life experiences. Uh, to inform all of the decisions and and all of the things that we do kind of every day. I think that lived experience just generally is important for psychological science, right? And so the larger variety that you can have of lived experience, I think the, the more we benefit as a scientific community. So I do think that, you know, overwhelmingly, we have quite a few people that do uh, clinical work that are uh, researchers, and that clinical work is valued as very, very important to understanding kind of the science. And so I think it should be the same for lived experience and and not just lived experience of people that have you know been to prison, uh, but family members of, of people that have been to prison, family members of individuals that have grown up in kind of over policed neighborhoods. That perspective even though we may not think of it as important in science, those perspectives are of extreme value. And so, yes, I, I 100% believe that, you know, my experience and, and other people's experience that have have experienced um, incarceration uh, are incredibly of value uh, to science. And, and we should really be finding ways to recruit individuals that have been formerly incarcerated and then not just recruit them, uh, but have resources. Uh, to make sure that, that they're successful and that lived experience perspective comes through
4: science or any academic field is better with a, as diverse a range of voices as possible i mean there are still massive um, inequalities in science for example and you know very keen to promote young girls coming into science we don't get enough young girls thinking that that is the route for them so any different voice someone who's a bit older like myself or we need more bame people in science all those different voices are really important um, because you know they bring so many more different viewpoints um, and that's really crucial
1: I don't have to put myself in the mind of an addict, right? That is very easy for me to do because I have the mind uh, of an addict. And so that is something that no matter how well I train, no matter how much I learn, no matter how much the academia side puts letters behind my name, I have a lived experience or I have this valuable history that gives me a perspective that is not available to a lot of my peers.
3: Now that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by the International Science Council, which looks at why diversity is so critical to advancing science and the steps we can take to improve it. I'm David Payne, Careers Editor at Nature. Thanks for listening.
2: Core to the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations is this notion of leaving no one behind. We have to make sure that the benefits are being extended to all sorts of groups of persons, many of whom may have historically been marginalized.
5: It feels like it's time. It's time for us to unearth different metaphors, different archives of knowledge, and to find nourishment in that. Welcome to this podcast
0: series from the International Science Council, where we're exploring diversity in science. I'm Marnie Chesterton, and this time we're looking at democratising knowledge and tools for a more sustainable future. Identifying pathways to sustainable, equitable development is a major focus of the ISC's work. In 2015, the UN decided on 17 Sustainable Development Goals, a blueprint for creating a better planet for everyone. These included eliminating poverty and hunger, reducing inequality and taking action on climate change. Meeting these goals will depend on access to tools, knowledge and data, and ensuring the voices of the vulnerable are heard and championed. In this episode,
5: we'll hear from two researchers working towards more sustainable futures. My name is Njairu Kulundu-Bolas. I am based in Cape Town, South Africa, and also the Eastern Cape, South Africa, and I am part of the Environmental Learning Research Centre at Rhodes University.
0: Njairo is part of a network supported by the ISC's Transformations to Sustainability Programme. This supports research on the complex social transformations needed to address problems of global environmental change.
5: My research focuses on decolonial youth futures in Africa. My research is about democratizing knowledge, and it's about inviting young people in particular to start to expand and grow the particular trajectories that they feel they have reason to value. I think the research comes out of a skepticism and maybe even a little bit of jadedness with some forms of youth development that try to contain what young people believe and try to almost inculcate them into being good citizens when often there's such huge contradictions they're experiencing and navigating in incredible ways in their contexts. So what would happen if we could allow the space for these incredible young people to lead us?
0: In her PhD, it was in Jairu's experience as an artist and a musician that gave her a new way of connecting with young people.
5: I tried to, at a particular point, write a paper about what I was hearing. And in sharing that paper back to the young people I was co-conspiring with, I realised that we'd lost the sense of engagement and we'd lost the freedom and we'd lost, we'd lost some vital energy. And it, it, it really came back to me as a researcher to think about a different way to echo that back and in this i used song i wrote songs in response well songs songs that really were able to hold what it was that i heard it moved beyond the rational and it it was able to speak of what what somebody was longing for what they're frustrated with what they had the strength to do and what they were hoping for in one breath because you had such a, a deeper palette of colours to play with in expressing that back. The gesture of song is an honouring one for someone to sing back to you. It's not, it's not the critique or an analysis. And um, one of the participants said to me it was interesting to feel seen and not looked at.
0: Creating an environment in which young people felt seen rather than looked at or examined allowed for deeper conversations about social transformation and the kind of changes they wanted to see.
5: A lot of our discourse in youth development doesn't give as much space for young people to articulate for themselves what they feel and need. One of the things that I often notice is that when we get into a space together, there is a really strong culture of debate. And, you know, in that kind of space whoever's got whatever you call articulateness <laughs> um, or, or who's loudest and more vociferous often wins. But it was really important to foster a space of a different kinds of dialogue and to use art-based methodologies um, to deepen that. And and for me, I think that the whole aspect of democratizing research and diversity is getting to the heart of that. Diversity means to me that the knowledge a grandmother holds is taken wholeheartedly as it is the knowledge that young people hold is taken wholeheartedly as it is it's it's a space that seeks to cut through all of this quite sometimes quite dense translation process and abstraction process that constitutes some people as knowers and others as as not knowing and for me diversity in terms of science has to account for The wasted knowledge that we have not been able to work with and push forward in meaningful ways. The Transformations to Sustainability programme supports sustainability
0: research led by social scientists that's focused on finding solutions. Crucially, the work involves all relevant groups at all stages of the research process. It's based on the premise that environmental and social sustainability will never be achieved without profound social change, as well as knowledge and data from many sources.
2: The Sustainable Development Goals, which were agreed upon by 193 countries back in 2015, come with a whole set of measurement requirements and so that requires huge amounts of data and statistics.
0: This is Hayden Dahm, who's a manager with the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Hayden works within the thematic research network on data and statistics,
2: or trends. I find it interesting just how many issues can be better explored and understood through modern data solutions. But I also find almost troubling, really, how much we still don't know out of the Sustainable Development Goals indicator list. There are some 90 plus indicators that deal with the environment. And for over two thirds of those environmental indicators, we do not have enough data to monitor our progress at a global level.
0: Hayden recently collaborated with the ISC on a webinar about gridded population data.
2: Gridded population restructures all that data according to squares laid out around the face of the earth and tries to estimate how many people are in each of those individual squares. And then you can have more complicated versions where you actually bring in satellite imagery and other forms of data. It's not about looking at where a specific individual is based, but how people might be clustered around, say, infrastructure, or do they have access to basic services, things like this. And one of the most practical applications, probably, is using population data for disaster response.
0: With less than 10 years to go to meet the sustainable development goals, access to data like this can really transform our understanding of what's happening on the ground at a local level.
2: Data is a form of knowledge and therefore it's a form of power really. And it's important for us to consider how do we make sure that we are advancing a form of sustainable development in a way that is genuinely inclusive rather than simply having this new form of power become concentrated in the hands of those who are already powerful. More generally, it's not good enough to just come in with a solution that you think might work. It really needs to be designed collaboratively. It needs to actually address the genuine needs of the community that you want to benefit.
0: The importance of looking at the genuine needs of a community is something that has particular resonance for Hayden. Hayden is blind and has worked collaboratively with colleagues and teachers to find practical solutions for accessing tools.
2: Doing engineering, studying as a blind student, there definitely were challenges to overcome. There were diagrams I couldn't see, equations I couldn't read. And uh, figuring that out was sometimes a struggle, but I was incredibly lucky that I had a supportive community, the professors who worked hard to find solutions. It definitely took extra hard work from me, but I could not have done it without this wider support. And together we Would create different tools. Um, We made these three dimensional, uh, 3D printed diagrams of electrical circuits. We made a software that allowed me to plot out an audio graph of data that I might have been analyzing. Uh, Like I've always uh, appreciated pointing out to people, no one can actually see an atom. So not being able to look at a diagram of an atom doesn't necessarily limit my ability to understand what it is. It's just that we've often chosen to represent things in a visual way out of convenience, but that doesn't mean that they can't be understood in a different way. If you apply a certain level of creativity and you're also part of a supportive community, um, there are great tools that can be found.
0: Aiden is sometimes contacted by people designing such tools. For this process to be successful, it has to include the perspective of the people who are going to end up using the product.
2: Oftentimes, sighted people who come up with a solution that they find to be possibly you know, a perfect candidate for a blind person don't necessarily understand what a blind person wants or needs and simply blindfolding themselves and giving it a test run doesn't give them all the information that they might require. And so it's really critical to not just try to put yourself in the shoes of your target audience, but really incorporate them in the process. And relatedly, I think sometimes focusing strictly on the technical might cause us to overlook the other aspects of solutions that are required as well. There's a lot of interest around installing beacons and train stations and uh, having highly technical app-based ways of allowing the blind to navigate. But sometimes the best solution might just be to have a person to show you the way.
0: Building on that, Hayden has seen how the data on the Sustainable Development Goals can inform honest conversations about how disability intersects with goals such as reducing poverty for all.
2: So there's some real progress being made in our ability to measure in a meaningful way the size of the population that's disabled. Poverty and disability certainly are intersecting issues that if you are poor, you're more likely to have disability complications. And likewise, if you're disabled, you're more likely to uh, experience poverty. And uh, so having data on this is an important first step to actually addressing some of these underlying issues, making sure that people with disabilities are able to be shown the respect that they deserve and have a chance at leading a life of dignity. It would be wrong to think that simply having the data uh, will solve these problems, but it's an important first step to having an honest conversation that goes beyond basic anecdotes and allows us to see things at a population level. Some 1 billion people around the world, or 15% of the total population, experience some sort of disability. And so when we talk about disability inclusion and access, uh, we are talking about respecting the dignity and improving the lives of a sizable portion of humanity. It's not about generosity and charity here. It's about um, realizing certain goals for all people.
0: In order to realise the overarching goal of the United Nations 2030 Agenda to leave no-one behind, access to scientific knowledge, data, tools and infrastructure is fundamental. And they need to exist within spaces that are open to diverse experiences. Only then can we truly hope to build a more sustainable, equitable and resilient future for everyone. That's it for this episode. More information about the projects mentioned in this podcast is available online at council.science. Next week, in the final episode of this series on diversity, we'll be considering how to combat systemic racism in science. In the past year, the issue of systemic racism in society and science has hit the headlines worldwide. We'll be hearing about why the ISC is taking a public stand on this topic, Shirley Malcolm and Adam Habib will be talking about the changes they've seen in the decades they've been working to challenge racism in research settings and discuss what's worked and what still needs to change. We'll also be hearing from Brittany Kamai about why we need to keep showing up and continue to have these conversations.